Chapter Thirty Seven of Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elliot Miller. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Thirty Seven. Stern was the law which bade its votaries leave, at human woes with human hearts to grieve. Stern was the law which at the winning while of frank and harmless mirth forbade to smile. But sterner still, when high the iron rod of tyrant power she shook, and called that power of God. The Middle Ages The tribunal, erected for the trial of the innocent and unhappy Rebecca, occupied the dais or elevated part of the upper end of the great hall. A platform, which we have already described as the place of honor, destined to be occupied by the most distinguished inhabitants or guests of an ancient mansion. On an elevated seat directly before the accused sat the Grand Master of the Temple, in full and ample robes of flowing white, holding in his hand the mystic staff which bore the symbol of the order. At his feet was placed a table, occupied by two scribes chaplains of the order, whose duty it was to reduce to formal record the proceedings of the day. The black dresses, bare scalps, and demure looks of these churchmen formed a strong contrast to the warlike appearance of the knights who attended, either as residing in the preceptory or as come hither to attend upon their grand master. The preceptors, of whom there were four present, occupied seats lower in height, and somewhat drawn back behind that of their superior and the knights, who enjoyed no such rank in the order, were placed on benches still lower, and preserving the same distance from the preceptors as these from the Grand Master. Behind them, but still upon the dais, or elevated portion of the hall, stood the esquires of the order, in white dresses of an inferior quality. The whole assembly wore an aspect of the most profound gravity and in the faces of the knights might be perceived traces of military daring, united with solemn carriage, becoming men of religious profession, and which, in the presence of their grand master, failed not to sit upon every brow. The remaining and lower part of the hall was filled with guards, holding partisans, and with other attendants whom curiosity had drawn thither, to see at once a grand master and a Jewish sorceress, by far the greater part of the inferior persons were, in one rank or another, connected with the order, and were accordingly distinguished by their black dresses. But peasants from the neighboring country were not refused admittance, for it was the pride of Waminoir to render the edifying spectacle of the justice which he administered as public as possible. His large blue eye seemed to expand as he gazed around the assembly and his countenance appeared elated by the conscious dignity and imaginary merit of the part which he was about to perform. A psalm, which he himself accompanied with a deep mellow voice, which age had not deprived of its powers, commenced the proceedings of the day, and the solemn sounds, Venite exultimus domino, so often sung by the Templars before engaging with earthly adversaries, was judged by Lucas most appropriate to introduce the approaching triumph, for such he deemed it over the powers of darkness. The deep prolonged notes, raised by a hundred masculine voices, 
accustomed to combine in the choral chant, arose to the vaulted roof of the hall and rolled on amongst its arches with the pleasing yet solemn sound of the rushing of mighty waters. When the sounds ceased, the Grand Master glanced his eyes slowly around the circle, and observed that the seat of one of the preceptors was vacant. Brian de Bois-Gilbert, by whom it had been occupied, had left his place, and was now standing near the extreme corner of one of the benches occupied by the knight's companions of the temple, one hand extending his long mantle, so as in some degree to hide his face, while the other held his cross-handled sword, at the point of which, sheathed as it was, he was slowly drawing lines upon the oaken floor. "'Unhappy men,' said the Grand Master, after favouring him with a glance of compassion. "'Thou seest, Conrade, how this holy work distresses him. To this can the light look of woman, aided by the prince of the powers of the world, bring a valiant and worthy knight. Seest thou, he cannot look upon us, he cannot look upon her, and who knows by what impulse from his tormentor his hand forms these cabalistic lines upon the floor?' It may be our life and safety are thus aimed at, but we spit at and defy the foul enemy. Semper dea prosecutor! This was communicated apart to his confidential follower, Conrad Montfichet. The Grand Master then raised his voice and addressed the assembly. Reverend and valiant men, knights, preceptors, and companions of this holy order, my brethren and my children, you also, well-born and pious esquires, who aspire to wear this holy cross, and you also, Christian brethren, of every degree, be it known to you that it is not defective power in us which has occasioned the assembling of this congregation, however unworthy in our person, yet to us is committed, with this platoon, full power to judge and to try all that regards the weal of this our holy order. Holy St. Bernard, in the rule of our knightly and religious profession, hath said in the fifty-ninth capital that he would not that brethren be called together in council, save at the will and command of the Master, leaving it free to us, as to those more worthy fathers who have preceded us in our office, to judge as well of the occasion as that of time and place in which a chapter of the whole order, or of any part thereof, may be convoked. Also, in all such chapters, it is our duty to hear the advice of our brethren, and to proceed according to our own pleasure. But when the raging wolf hath made an inroad upon the flock, and carried off one member thereof, it is the duty of the kind shepherd to call his comrades together, that with bows and slings they may quell the invader, according to our well-known rule, that the lion is ever to be beaten down. We have, therefore, summoned to our presence a Jewish woman, by name Rebecca, daughter of Isaac of York, a woman infamous for sortilages and for witcheries, whereby she hath maddened the blood and besotted the brain, not of a churl, but of a knight, not of a secular knight, but of one devoted to the service of the holy temple, not of a knight companion, but of a preceptor of our order, first in honour as in place. 
Our brother, Brian de Bois-Gilbert, is well known to ourselves, and to all degrees who now hear me. As a true and zealous champion of the cross, by whom's army made deeds of valor have been wrought in the Holy Land, and the holy places purified from pollution by the blood of those infidels who defiled them. Neither have our brother's sagacity and prudence been less in repute among his brethren than his valor and discipline, insomuch that knights, both in eastern and western lands, have named de Bois-Gilbert as one who may well be put in nomination as successor to this platoon, when it shall please heaven to release us from the toil of bearing it. If we were told that such a man, so honoured and so honourable, suddenly casting away regard for his character, his vows, his brethren, and his prospects, has associated to himself a Jewish damsel, wandered in this lewd company, through solitary places, defended her person in preference to his own, and finally was so utterly blinded and besotted by his folly as to bring her even to one of our own preceptories. What should we say but that noble knight was possessed by some evil demon, or influenced by some wicked spell? If we could suppose it otherwise, think not rank, valour, high repute, or any earthly consideration, should prevent us from visiting with him punishment, that the evil thing might be removed. Even according to the text, a fruite malum es vobus, for various and heinous are the acts of transgression against the rule of our blessed order in this lamentable history. First, he hath walked according to his proper will, contrary to capital thirty-three, quod nullis juxta proprium voluntatum incidat. Second, he has held communication with an excommunicated person. Capital 57. Ut fratres non participant cum excommunicatus, and therefore hath a portion in anathema mananathera. Third, he hath conversed with strange women, contrary to the capital. Ut fratres non conversatator cum extraneous mulieribus. Fourth, he hath not avoided, nay, he hath, it is to be feared, solicited the kiss of woman, by which saith the last rule of our renowned order, Ut fugiantur oscula, the soldiers of the cross are brought into a snare, for which heinous and multiplied guilt, Brian de Bois-Gilbert should be cut off and cast out from our congregation, were he the right hand and right eye thereof. He paused. A low murmur went through the assembly. Some of the younger part, who had been inclined to smile at the statute de Osculus Fugindius, became now grave enough, and anxiously waited what the Grand Master was next to propose. Such, he said, and are so great should indeed be the punishment of a Knight Templar, who willfully offended against the rules of his order in such weighty points, but— if by means of charms and of spells Satan had obtained dominion over the knight, perchance because he cast his eyes too lightly upon a damsel's beauty, we are then rather to lament 
then chastise his backsliding, and imposing on him only such penance as may purify him from his inequity. We are to turn the full edge of our indignation upon the accursed instrument, which had so well nigh occasioned his utter falling away. Stand forth, therefore, and bear witness, ye who have witnessed these unhappy doings, that we may judge of the sum and bearing thereof, and judge whether our justice may be satisfied with the punishment of this infidel woman, or, if we must go on with a bleeding heart, to the further proceeding against our brother. Several witnesses were called upon to prove the risks to which Wagilbert exposed himself in endeavouring to save Rebecca from the blazing castle, and his neglect of his personal defence in attending to her safety. The men gave these details with the exaggerations common to vulgar minds which have been strongly excited by any remarkable event, and their natural disposition to the marvellous was greatly increased by the satisfaction which their evidence seemed to afford to the eminent person for whose information it had been delivered. Thus the dangers which Bois-Gilbert surmounted, in themselves sufficiently great, became portentous in their narrative. The devotion of the knight to Rebecca's defence was exaggerated beyond the bounds, not only of discretion, but even of the most frantic excess of chivalrous zeal. And his deference to what she said, even though her language was often severe and upbraiding, was painted as carried to an excess, which, in a man of his haughty temper, seemed almost preternatural. The preceptor of Templestowe was then called upon to describe the manner in which Bois-Gilbert and the Jewess arrived at the preceptory. The evidence of Malvoisin was skilfully guarded, but while he apparently studied to spare his feelings of Bois-Gilbert, he threw in, from time to time, such hints as seemed to infer that he had labored under some temporary alienation of mind, so deeply did he appear to be enamored of the damsel whom he brought along with him. With sighs of penitence the preceptor avowed his own contrition for having admitted Rebecca and her lover within the walls of the preceptory. But my defense, he concluded, has been made in my confession to our most revered father, the Grand Master. He knows my motives were not evil, though my conduct may have been irregular. Joyfully will I submit to any penance he shall assign me. Thou hast spoken well, Brother Albert, said Wamanwar. Thy motives were good since thou didst judge it right to arrest thine erring brother in his career of precipitate folly. But thy conduct was wrong, as he that would stop a runaway steed in seizing by the stirrup instead of the bridle, receiveth injury himself, instead of accomplishing his purpose. Thirteen paternosters are assigned by our pious founder for matins, and nine for vespers. Be those services doubled by thee. Thrice a week are Templars permitted the use of flesh, but do thou keep fast for all the seven days. This do for six weeks to come, and thy penance is accomplished. With a hypocritical look of the deepest submission, the preceptor of Templestowe bowed to the ground before his superior, and resumed his seat. Were it not well, brethren, said the Grand Master, 
that we examine something into the former life and conversation of this woman, specially that we may discover whether she be one likely to use magical charms and spells, since the truth which we have heard may well incline us to suppose that in this unhappy course our erring brother has been acted upon by some infernal enticement and delusion? Herman of Gudelric was the fourth preceptor present. The other three were Conrad, Malvasine, and Wagilbert himself. Herman was an ancient warrior, whose face was marked with scars inflicted by the saber of the Moslem, and had great rank and consideration among his brethren. He arose and bowed to the Grand Master, who instantly granted him license of speech. I would crave to know, most reverend father, of our valiant brother Brian de Bois-Gilbert, what he says to these wondrous accusations, and with what eye he himself now regards his unhappy intercourse with this Jewish maiden. Brian de Bois-Gilbert, said the Grand Master, Thou hearest the question which our brother of Gudric desirest thou shouldst answer. I command thee to reply to him. Wagilbert turned his head toward the Grand Master, when thus addressed, and remained silent. He is possessed by a dumb devil, said the Grand Master. Avoid thee, Satanus. Speak, Brian de Wagilbert. I conjure thee by this symbol of our holy order. Wagilbert made an effort to suppress his rising scorn and indignation, the expression of which, he was well aware, would have little availed him. Brian de Bois-Gilbert, he answered, replies not, most revered father, to such wild and vague charges. If his honor be impeached, he will defend it with his body, and with that sword which he has oft fought for Christendom. We forgive thee, Brother Brian, said the Grand Master, though that thou hast boosted thy warlike achievement before us, is a glorifying of thine own deeds, and cometh of the enemy, who tempteth us to exalt our own worship. But thou hast our pardon, judging thou speakest less of thine own suggestion, than from the impulse of him by whom heavens leave, we will quell and drive forth from our assembly. A glance of disdain flashed from the dark, fierce eyes of Wagilbert, but he made no reply. "'And now,' pursued the Grand Master, "'since our brother of Gudelric's question has thus been imperfectly answered, pursue we our guest, brethren, and with our patron's assistance we will search to the bottom of this mystery of inequity, that those who have ought to witness the life and conversation of this Jewish woman stand forth before us. There was a bustle in the lower part of the hall, and when the Grand Master inquired the reason, it was replied, there was in the crowd a bedridden man, whom the prisoner had restored to the perfect use of his limbs by a miraculous balsam. The poor peasant, a Saxon by birth, was dragged forward to the bar, terrified at the penal consequences which he might have incurred by the guilt of having been cursed of the palsy by a Jewish damsel. Perfectly cured he certainly was not, for he supported himself forward on crutches to give evidence. Most unwilling was his testimony, and given with many tears, 
but he admitted that two years since, when residing at York, he was suddenly afflicted with a sore disease, while laboring for Isaac the rich Jew, in his vocation of a joiner, that he had been unable to stir from his bed until the remedies applied by Rebecca's directions, and especially a warming and spicy-smelling balsam, had in some degree restored him the use of his limbs. Moreover, he said, she had given him a pot of that precious ointment, and furnished him with a piece of money withal, to return to the house of his father, near to Templestowe. "'May it please your gracious reverence,' said the man, "'I cannot think the damsel meant harm by me, though she hath the ill hap to be a Jewess, for even when I used her remedy, I said the pater and his creed, and it never operated a whit less kindly.' "'Peace, slave,' said the Grand Master, "'and be gone. It well suits brutes like thee to be tapering and trinketing with hellish cues, and to be giving your labour to the sons of mischief. I tell thee, the fiend can impose diseases for the very purpose of removing them, in order to bring into credit some diabolical fashion of cure. Hast thou that urgent of which thou speakest?' The peasant, fumbling in his bosom with a trembling hand, produced a small box, bearing some Hebrew characters on the lid, which was, with most of the audience, a sure proof that the devil had stood apothecary. Wamanwar, after crossing himself, took the box into his hand, and learned in most of the eastern tongues, read with ease the motto on the lid, The Lion of the tribe of Judah hath conquered. Strange powers of Satanus! which can convert scripture into blasphemy, mingling poison with our necessary food. Is there no leech here who can tell us the ingredients of this mystic ungent? Two mediciners, as they called themselves, the one a monk, the other a barber, appeared, and avouched they knew nothing of the materials, excepting that they savored of myrrh and campure, which they took to be oriental herbs, but with true professional hatred to a successful practitioner of their art, they insinuated that, since the medicine was beyond their own knowledge, it must necessarily have been compounded from an unlawful and magical pharmacopoeia, since they themselves, though no conjurers, fully understood every branch of their art, so far as it might be exercised with the good faith of a Christian. When this medical research was ended, the Saxon peasant desired humbly to have back the medicine which he had found so salutary but the Grand Master frowned severely at the request. "'What is thy name, fellow?' said he to the cripple. "'Hig, the son of Snell,' answered the peasant. "'Then, Hig, son of Snell,' said the Grand Master, "'I will tell thee it is better to be bedridden than to accept the benefit of unbelievers' medicine that thou mayest arise and walk, better to despoil infidels of their treasure by the strong hand.' than to accept of them benevolent gifts, or do them service for wages. Go thou, and do as I have said. Alack, said the peasant, and it shall not displease your reverence. The lesson comes too late for me, for I am but a maimed man, and I will tell my two brethren, who serve the rich rabbi Nathan ben Samuel, that your mastership says it is more lawful to rob him than to render him faithful service. Out with the prating villain, 
said Boisminoir, who was not prepared to refute this practical application of his general maxim. Haig, the son of Snell, withdrew into the crowd, but, interested in the fate of his benefactress, lingered until he should learn her doom, even at the risk of again encountering the frown of that severe judge, the terror of which withered his very heart within him. At this period of the trial, the Grand Master commanded Rebecca to unveil herself. Opening her lips for the first time, she replied patiently but with dignity, "'That it was not the want of the daughters of her people to uncover their faces when alone in an assembly of strangers.' The sweet tones of her voice and the softness of her reply impressed on the audience a sentiment of pity and sympathy. But Boisminoir, in whose mind the suppression of each feeling of humanity, which could interfere with his imagined duty, was a virtue of itself, repeated his commands that the victim should be unveiled. The guards were about to remove her veil accordingly, when she stood up before the Grand Master and said, "'Nay, but for the love of your own daughters, alas!' she said, recollecting herself. "'Ye have no daughters. Yet for the remembrance of your mothers, for the love of your sisters, and a female decency, let me not be thus handled in your presence. It suits not a maiden to be disrobed by such rude grooms. I will obey you,' she added, with an expression of patient sorrow in her voice, which had almost melted the heart of Boisminoir himself. "'Ye are elders among your people,' and at your command I will show the features of an ill-fated maiden. She withdrew her veil, and looked on them with a countenance in which bashfulness contended with dignity. Her exceeding beauty excited a murmur of surprise, and the younger knights told each other with their eyes, in silent correspondence, that Brian's best apology was in the power of her real charms, rather than of her imaginary witchcraft. But Hig, the son of Snell, felt most deeply the effect produced by the sight of the countenance of his benefactress. "'Let me go forth,' he said to the warders at the door of the hall. "'Let me go forth to look at her again will kill me, for I have had a share in murdering her.' "'Peace, poor man,' said Rebecca, when she heard his exclamation. "'Thou hast done me no harm by speaking the truth. Thou canst not aid me by thy complaints or lamentations. Peace, I pray thee.' Go home and save thyself. Hig, who was about to be thrust out by the compassion of the warders, who were apprehensive lest his clamorous grief should draw upon them reprehension, and upon himself punishment, but he promised to be silent and was permitted to remain. The two men-at-arms, with whom Albert Malvasine had not failed to communicate upon the import of their testimony, were now called forward. Though both were hardened and, and inflexible villains, the sight of their captive maiden, as well as her excelling beauty, at first appeared to stagger them. But an expressive glance from the preceptor of Templestowe restored them to their dogged composure, and they delivered, with a precision with whom it seemed suspicious to more impartial judges, circumstances either altogether fictitious or trivial, and natural in themselves, but rendered pregnant with suspicion by the exaggerated manner in which they were told, and the sinister commentary which the witnesses added to the facts. The circumstances of their evidence would have been, in modern days, divided into two classes, those which were immaterial and those which were actually and physically impossible. But both were, in those ignorant and superstitious times, 
easily credited as proofs of guilt. The first class set forth that Rebecca was heard to mutter to herself in an unknown tongue, that the songs she sung by fits were of a strangely sweet sound, which made the ears of the hearer tingle, and his heart throb, that she spoke at times to herself, and seemed to look upward for a reply, that her garments were of a strange and mystic form, unlike those of women of good repute, that she had rings impressed with cabalistical devices, and that strange characters were broidered on her veil. All these circumstances, so natural and so trivial, were gravely listened to as proofs, or, at least, as affording strong suspicions that Rebecca had unlawful correspondence with mystical powers. But there was less equivocal testimony, which the credulity of the assembly, or of the greater part, greedily swallowed, however incredible. One of the soldiers had seen her work a cure upon a wounded man, brought with them to the castle of Torquilstone. She did, he said, make certain signs upon the wound, and repeated certain mysterious words, which he blessed God he understood not, when the iron head of a square crossbow bolt disengaged itself from the wound, the bleeding was staunched, the wound was closed, and the dying man was, within a quarter of an hour, walking upon the ramparts, and assisting the witnesses in managing a mangonel, or machine for hurling stones. This legend was probably founded upon the fact that Rebecca had attended on the wounded Ivanhoe when in the castle of Torquilstone but it was the more difficult to dispute the accuracy of the witness, as, in order to produce real evidence in support of his verbal testimony, he drew from his pouch the very bolt-head, which, according to his story, had been miraculously extracted from the wound. And as the iron weighed a full ounce, it completely confirmed the tale, however marvelous. His comrade had been a witness from a neighboring battlement of the scene betwixt Rebecca and Wagilbert, when she was upon the point of precipitating herself from the top of the tower. Not to be behind his companion, this fellow stated that he had seen Rebecca perch herself upon the parapet of the turret, and there take the form of a milk-white swan, under which appearance she flitted three times round the castle of Torquilstone, then again settle on the turret and once more assume the female form. Less than one half of this weighty evidence would have been sufficient to convict any old woman, poor and ugly, even though she had not been a Jewess. United with that fatal circumstance, the body of proof was too weighty for Rebecca's youth, though combined with the most exquisite beauty. The Grand Master had collected the suffrages, and now in a solemn tone demanded of Rebecca what she had to say against the sentence of condemnation which he was about to pronounce. "'To invoke your pity,' said the lovely Jewess, with a voice somewhat tremulous with emotion, "'would, I am aware, be as useless as I should hold it mean, to state that to relieve the sick and wounded of another religion cannot be displeasing to the acknowledged founder of both our faiths, were also unavailing. To plead that many things which these men whom may heaven pardon, have spoken against me are impossible, would avail me but little, since you believe in their possibility. And still less would it advantage me to explain that the peculiarities of my dress, language, and manners are those of my people, 
I had well nigh said of my country. But alas, we have no country. Nor will I even vindicate myself at the expense of my oppressor, who stands there listening to the fictions and surmises which seem to convert the tyrant into the victim. God be judge between him and me. But rather would I submit to ten such deaths as your pleasure may denounce against me, than listen to the suit which that man of Belial has urged upon me, friendless, defenceless, and his prisoner. But he is of your own faith, and his lightest affirmations would weigh down the most solemn protestations of the distressed Jewess. I will not therefore return to himself the charge brought against me, but to himself, yes, Brian de Bois-Gilbert, to thyself I appeal, whether these accusations are not false, as monstrous and calamitous as they are deadly. There was a pause. All eyes turned to Brian de Bois-Gilbert. He was silent. Speak, she said, if thou art a man, if thou art a Christian, speak. I conjure thee, by the habit which thou dost wear, by the name thou dost inherit, by the knighthood thou dost vaunt, by the honour of thy mother, by the tomb and the bones of thy father, I conjure thee to say, Are these things true? Answer her, brother, said the Grand Master, if the enemy with whom thou dost wrestle will give thee power. In fact, Bois-Gilbert seemed agitated by contending passions, which almost convulsed his features, and it was with a constrained voice that at last he replied, looking to Rebecca, The scroll! The scroll! Aye, said Bois-Manoir, this is indeed testimony. The victim of her witcheries can only name the fatal scroll, the spell inscribed on which is, doubtless, the cause of his silence. But Rebecca put another interpretation on the words extorted as if it were from Bois-Gilbert, and glancing her eye upon the slip of parchment, which she continued to hold in her hand, she read, written thereupon in the Arabian character, Demand a Champion. The murmuring commentary which ran through the assembly at the strange reply of Bois-Gilbert gave Rebecca leisure to examine and instantly to destroy the scroll unobserved. When the whisper had ceased, the Grand Master spoke. "'Rebecca, thou canst derive no benefit from the evidence of this unhappy knight, for whom, as we well perceive, the enemy is yet too powerful. Hast thou aught else to say?' "'There is yet one chance of life left to me,' said Rebecca. "'Even by your own fierce laws. Life has been miserable—miserable, at least, of late.' But I will not cast away the gift of God while he affords me the means of defending it. I deny this charge. I maintain my innocence, and I declare the falsehood of this accusation. I challenge the privilege of trial by combat, and will appear by my champion. And who, Rebecca, replied the Grand Master, will lay lance in rest for a sorceress? Who will be the champion of a Jewess? God will raise me up a champion, said Rebecca. It cannot be that in merry England, the hospitable, the generous, the free, where so many are ready to peril their lives for honour, that there will not be found one to fight for justice. But it is enough that I challenge the trial by combat. There lies my gage. She took her embroidered glove from her hand, and flung it down before the Grand Master with an air of mingled simplicity and dignity, which excited universal surprise and admiration. End of chapter 37